The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Some of the work that I've done historically has been around detecting terrorist activity by looking at changes in patterns of behavior. And one of the main ways that people change their behavior in the lead up to terrorist attacks and terrorist events is through financial activity. So the procurement of goods, weapons, device components, but there's also other ways that they change their behavior. They may quit their job, they may send money to friends or family, a form of getting their affairs in order. They may settle some of their debts. They may even do things like write wills. There's a whole bunch of sort of activities that fit into this broader sort of personal finance categorization that when you're looking at different subjects of investigation and trying to figure out, okay, I've got I've got 15 people that I think are radicalized and could be looking to mobilize to violence. Where am I focusing my resources? Who is actually getting ready? When you see some of those changes in financial behavior, that starts to tell you an awful lot about where people are heading. I'm Jacob Schultz, and this is The Lawfare Podcast, October 6, 2021. Jessica Davis is the author of a new book on terrorism financing called Illicit Money, Financing Terrorism in the 21st Century. She's also the president and principal consultant at Insight Threat Intelligence, the president of the Canadian Association for Security and Intelligence Studies, and an associate fellow at the Center for Financial Crime and Security Studies. We talked about her new book and about terrorism financing more broadly. What's the value of focusing on the financial side of things as opposed to the motivations that drive people to terrorism? Which parts of the terrorism financing ecosystem often get overlooked? And much, much more. It's the Lawfare Podcast, October 6th. Jessica Davis on terrorism financing. So maybe the best place to start here is with a definitional question. So what are we talking about when we talk about terror financing? So how did you set the bounds of what that means for the purposes of this book? The whole idea of what terrorist financing is, I think, has changed quite a lot over the last 20 years. I would say that, you know, when I first started in this field, we talked a lot about raising and moving money. That was kind of the focus on what we meant by terrorist financing. And then it sort of expanded out a little bit more into how terrorists use their money. And in some cases, we started talking about how they store, you know, sometime, sometime I think in the mid, mid-2010s. But during the time that I was actually working in counter-terrorist financing and, and doing a lot of this work, it really became clear to me that 
that was too narrow in terms of the bounds of what we mean by terrorist financing, because what I was seeing in a lot of the operational cases that I was looking at was a much greater range of activity. So I was seeing terrorist actors managing their money that could have been at the organizational level or for cells or plots, and also taking a lot of effort to obscure the source and destination of their funds. So when I talk about terrorist financing, I talk about these six main methods. So how terrorists raise, use, move, store, manage, and obscure their funds. And you know, for me, it's really important that we talk about all of those different things separately because it's so easy to forget about one of them and the focus on the really obvious stuff right in front of us. And they all have different, they all present different opportunities for counterterrorism, counterterrorist financing, and disruption. Yeah, and I, I want to dive into all that in a bit. But one thing that you mentioned that I thought was interesting at the beginning of the book was there's this relative propensity of people to to do research about the motivations of terror groups as opposed to digging into the financial side of things. So I'm curious to hear a bit more about what you mean by that and sort of what the what the consequences of that is for terror research in general. Yeah, and I think this is really quite obvious when you look at all of the research that's gone into radicalization over the last 10 or 15 years. When I think about terrorism research, I think that there's a lot of questions, obviously, about that motivation piece. So what drives individuals to engage in terrorism, to be drawn to terrorist or extremist groups? And I do find that to be a really interesting question. But I also think that it's the kind of question that is so individual and that, that we're not going to get to one answer. You know, we've done, we've done 15, 20 years of research on this radicalization s- subject. And I really don't think that we're much further along in terms of actionable information than we were before. I think we have a better sense of what those individual push and pull factors are. But from a counterterrorism perspective, I'm not always that convinced that having additional knowledge in that space is all that useful. You know, it doesn't help us identify who the next individual is who's going to take action on their ideas. Certainly it helps us understand the problem at that 10,000 foot level, but it really falls apart at the individual level. So the other piece I think that's a little bit more promising from a counterterrorism perspective is to look at the very specific actions that people take when they're mobilizing to violence or mobilizing to terrorism or and how terrorist organizations exist. Because that's where I think that we have the best opportunity to actually engage in in, in really concrete counterterrorism aspects, counter their financing, and disrupt their activities. Yeah, and, and so let's let's dive into your analysis here. And you, as you say, you, you break it into different stages, right? So there's the raising of the funds, the managing of the funds, the obscuring of the funds. I want to start with maybe the obvious place and the place that you identify as the the object of most focus, which is the raising of money. So give us the ten thousand foot view about the different ways that the different groups and individuals raise money. And there's there's obviously a ton here, but it it is helpful, I think, to sort of think about the constellation of what's going on. When we talk about raising money. I think some of the most common things that people will be familiar with are in fact some of the most prevalent methods of raising funds by terrorist organizations and individuals. So of course, we've got state sponsors of terrorism. So your usual suspects here in terms of Iran providing money to Hezbollah and sometimes to Hamas. But there are also lots of other state sponsors as well, who provide sort of smaller amounts of money less in a less sustained way. But that's a major source of funds for a lot of terrorist groups. Other sources of funds and how they raise money is from 
wealthy donors. And this can this is where it gets a little bit murky in terms of what's the difference between sort of a, a wealthy individual who actually holds a position of power in a government and a state sponsor. Sometimes those those boundaries become a little bit muddy. But they we can sort of think about them in, in separate categories because they think they call for different counterterrorism financing responses. And then we've got identity-based support networks. So this is where individuals who sort of identify with a terrorist's ideology, they're the ones who are donating money. This could be, you know, something as widespread perhaps as the LTTE, where they had huge amounts of support from a lot of different diaspora communities, or something much smaller. We saw the Islamic State, for instance, have identity-based support networks in a number of different countries, and they were they were donating quite smaller amounts of money to the group. So I'd say those are some of the main ways. And then terrorists also raise money through criminal activity. At the organizational level, this will look something like extortion, protection rackets. So again, the Islamic State is a great example here where they controlled territory and were able to tax and extort the population in their area of control. But other kinds of criminal activity are also common for organizations and for operational actors. It could be things like financial crimes, drug trafficking, taxing of drug trafficking routes. And so there's all these different ways that terrorist groups raise money. And a lot of them do sort of intersect with that criminal space. Sometimes it's not them engaging in that criminal activity directly. They may be taxing it. They may be providing protection money. But those are some of the main ways. And there is some difference in terms of how terrorist organizations will fund their fund themselves or raise funds and how operational cells do. And I say that one of those main points right now is that most operational activity these days has some or all of it being funded through local activities. So the individuals may be raising money themselves. They may be donating money to their own plot or, or cell. And so that self-financing piece is really strong. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there, and I think I want to walk through it piece by piece, but maybe the natural place to start is with that last point you made. So talk a bit more about that. You you bring this up at a bunch of different points in the book, the difference between organizational funding and operational funding. So if you're someone who's in the countering extremism space, why is that distinction so relevant when it comes to financing questions? This question, I think, really touches on a lot of different issues that we see in counterterrorist financing and counterterrorism more broadly. So I would say that in the post 9-11 world, we set up a whole bunch of norms and regulations to counter the financing of terrorism and sort of stop the flow of funds to terrorist organizations. And I'm using air quotes here because I don't think that that's necessarily always something that's, that we're able to do. And a lot of those rules and regulations were set up, set up around countering organizational financing. So the l- relatively larger amounts of money that go to terrorist groups. But what we've seen over the last 10 or 15 years is that terrorist plots and attacks are increasingly funded by individuals on the ground in the country where they're actually trying to do their operations. And the cost of terrorism has actually decreased over time. Now, it's a little bit beyond the scope of this book, where I really try to focus on on the the terrorist financing mechanisms and just try to bring in a little bit of the counter-terrorist financing piece. But my hypothesis is really that what's happened here is that a lot of those counter-terrorist financing norms and regulations have had the effect of making it harder for terrorist groups to actually fund operations, which is good. It's, It's reducing the scope and scale of some of those activities and forcing terrorist groups to adopt more local sources of funds, more self-financing methods. 
from a counter-terrorist financing perspective, though, this becomes more difficult. When we're talking about small amounts of money, when we're talking about fairly innocuous financial behaviors, it becomes very difficult to detect. Is there a particular example of that that comes to mind, right? It's, it seems like the type of thing that's very, very, you know, it's case-specific, but there are some some evocative examples. There's a lot of different examples that I could probably point to here, but I'm, I'm going to go with one that most listeners are probably not familiar with. And I'm going to use the Toronto 18 case here because it's such an interesting one. So this is a case from, you know, the mid 2000s, where we had a number of individuals in Canada, basically trying to construct improvised explosive devices to blow up the Canadian Security Intelligence Service headquarters in Toronto, and potentially the stock exchange. It's not entirely clear what their actual target was, but it's sort of that downtown Toronto area. What they ended up doing for the financing component was really self-financing. There, there are there is some evidence that they did have some international connections that never transpired in terms of financing. There was maybe some more of an aspect of training that was involved. So the individuals basically collected money, and it was actually largely one individual who was responsible for essentially setting the budget for this attack and managing the fund. And all of it came from local sources. All of the money was stored locally all of that kind of thing. So even for a relatively large, what would have been a large scale attack, he managed to, I think it was amass somewhere in the $20,000 range. And and the cell did manage to get fairly close to constructing an improvised explosive device. There was no external financing. And then we can also look at other kinds of attacks where we're talking about things like vehicle ramming attacks, stabbing attacks, a lot of firearms attacks. These are all sort of self-financed. Yeah, just sticking with the the financing side of things. So I, I'm curious, one thing that, that you reference in the book at, at different points is there's really a broad spectrum of ideological inclinations of terror groups or absent ideological inclinations. So does ideology inflect funding strategy, right? Do Islamic extremists think about funding in a different way than white nationalist terrorists or separatists or, or anything like that? When I was looking at the roughly, you know, 50-ish groups that I looked at in depth for this this book, I didn't find a lot of difference in terms of the ideology and the funding and, and the financing strategies that they used. A lot of us would probably assume that, you know, really heavily religious organizations might not turn to things like criminal activity or drug trafficking, you know, because in some cases they've outright said that they wouldn't do that. But there's a lot of daylight between what terrorist groups say and what they end up doing. From a financing perspective, and I'd say operationally as well, terrorists do what is expedient. So if they have the opportunity to raise money from you know, the drug trade, for instance, they will do that. They may not be the ones producing the drugs themselves, but they'll tax the roots, they'll provide protection, they'll take a cut of that economic activity. The one thing that I would say that's a bit different, and this is sort of a bit more of a recent trend, you know, within the last three or four years, is the use of cryptocurrency in the anti-government space. A lot of our ideologically motivated violent extremists have a propensity towards cryptocurrency and particularly Bitcoin. We have seen that with other groups as well. But there's sort of this, you know, this Venn diagram, I would say, of those Bitcoin bros and the anti-government extremists, where when they overlap, you really get a bit more of an ideological inclination towards using cryptocurrencies and decentralized currencies, particularly to move away from state-backed currency. 
I'm not always convinced about how effective that is in terms of generating money. I think it's one of those trends that's also really present in society writ large. So it's hard to say how much that's being driven by ideology and how instead of just how much is being driven by broader societal trends, like it's quite common for people to have Bitcoin and other forms of cryptocurrency these days. So there's a little bit of a caveat to that, but I think that's one of the only places where I see a bit of an ideological incentive towards one type of financing. Yeah, it's really interesting. And we'll come back to the the crypto side of things in a bit. So one thing still on the on the funding side that I'm curious about is what do you think about traditional understandings of, of how terror financing works is, is the most out of date, right? You you talk a lot about the changes that, that we've seen over time. Where are we still stuck in our understanding of what's going on? I think one of the places where we get a little bit stuck is the idea of hawalas. These are informal, well, I mean, depending on how you want to want to characterize this, these are traditional money method movements um, outside of the formal financial sector. There's probably way better definitions that you'll get in my book than I can give you right here on the, on the podcast. But these methods of moving funds have been really vilified. It really comes out of that 9-11 moment where we misunderstood or perhaps deliberately misconstrued what Hawala was and how terrorist actors can use it. And the informal nature of it really got vilified, kind of without a lot of evidence. Um, So that's not to say that terrorist actors don't use Hawala, they absolutely do. But I think when we think about scope and scale of, you know, the flow of funds, certainly the movement of funds, Hawala doesn't really rank up quite as high as things like banks or cash, for instance. So I would say that that's one of the main areas where we get hung up on it. And then in terms of raising money, I think you know, just misunderstanding the diversity of funds and or funding sources rather, and how terrorist actors really exploit the economic activity in their area of control or operation. So if your economy has a particular sector that's, you know, very lucrative, if terrorist actors can exploit it, they will. So, you know, it's for me, it's really just about understanding where the terrorists are operating where they want to operate and how they're going to exploit both the financial sector there and the economy there. And so on the raising fund side, you, you talk a bunch about the role of financial crime. So walk us through what what's the Venn diagram between financial crime, broadly speaking, and, and terror financing on the raising fund side? So financial crime is one of those things that I think terrorists would use a lot more if they had the wherewithal to do it, um, particularly online financial crimes. It's one of the the biggest growing areas in terms of financial frauds and, and money laundering issues writ large. And it can generate a lot of money and it can do it quickly. But where terrorists often get hung up is, you know, first of all, not wanting necessarily to commit criminal activity because it can raise the specter of detection by law enforcement security services. So unless a terrorist actor has pre-existing skill sets in that area, they're unlikely to sort of branch into the financial crime space. And the same thing is true for a lot of organizations. It does take some time to develop these skills and capabilities. So unless they're recruiting people with them or unless they're developing them intrinsically, they're not necessarily going to get into the financial crime space. But I think it's one of those places where it starts to become a little bit difficult in some cases to pick apart exactly where sort of ordinary criminal activity happens and where the terrorist activity starts. 
you know, it starts to get really murky in that space. So there's a there's also a possibility that we've been underestimating the role of financial crime for terrorist activity. And it's one of the things you you talk about is that there's way, way, way less focus on what happens once the terrorists get the money, right? And you talked a bit about this earlier in our conversation, but I'm curious, why does that not get as much attention? I think it doesn't get quite as much attention because in part, it's quite obvious what terrorists do with money. They commit terrorist attacks. But it's that's sort of a simplistic way to think about it. So when I think about what terrorists are doing with the money, I want to know all of the different details. So some of the really interesting things that I discovered in the course of the research for this book were, for instance, their spending on intelligence services. So the, the development of an intelligence organization or certainly function within terrorist groups is super interesting and how they end up paying for that. And along the same lines is how they pay for and develop operational security measures. So we can think about this as how often they're changing out their cell phones or what other kinds of operational security measures they might be taking. A lot of the time for plots or attacks, this is things like acquiring a safe house. And when we think about all the different ways that they're spending or using their money, we can start to see the possibilities for disruption or the possibilities for countering the financing, but also some of the challenges. So if you can see that they're constantly purchasing new cell phones, well, then you may have a bit of an issue getting up on any of those cells in terms of um, interception, right? So it explains some issues you may be having in a counter-terrorist financing, in a counter-terrorism investigation rather, but also opens some other opportunities. So understanding how terrorist groups use that money also speaks to their their future. When we look at a terrorist group and if they're spending money on, you know, how much money they're spending on salaries, for me, tells me something about the health of the group, how loyal their members will be. Again, we sometimes think that terrorists will be entirely motivated by ideology, but they also have to eat. They also have to send money to their families. They have responsibilities. These are people who exist in the world just like the rest of us do. And I can't live on no money and they probably can't either. Are there particular examples that come to mind of of why looking at this side of things is particularly useful from a counterterrorism perspective? You give a lot in the book that might be interesting to bring out here. Well, I think the Islamic State is an obvious example. So understanding how their salary structure changed over time, I think provides more insight into their actual financial health than some of the estimates of their revenues. This is another common issue that we get into in the counter-terrorist financing space where we conflate revenues or the amount of money that a terrorist organization is able to generate with their profits. So most terrorist groups especially, you know, something like ISIL, who's maybe generating a ton of money from a bunch of different economic activity, but, you know, primarily oil sales, taxation and extortion of economic activity, antiquities theft, or taxing of antiquities theft, those kinds of things are generating, you know, pretty profound revenues for them. But they also have to provide a lot of services. So they're you know, providing basic policing services when they control the territory. They have, of course, as I mentioned, the intelligence function that they're undertaking. And so it starts to, if you if you start to look at that in more detail and start to see how they're using some of that money, you start to wonder a little bit about, first of all, how much are they actually able to hold in terms of profit? And how much will they actually be able to dedicate to attacks? Now, it's a little bit of um, a difficult analysis to do, you know, obviously getting access to that kind of the fidelity of information that you need to really do that kind of work is 
even in the intelligence space, I think pretty rare. But you know, being able to make some gross estimates about what that looks like speaks to their future capabilities. And this is one of the reasons why I'm a little bit skeptical about analyses that say that the Islamic State has hundreds of millions of dollars stored away. I think that they do have money stored away. I think, though, that some of their leaders probably benefited personally from that, including some of their financial managers. So a lot of that money may have gone essentially missing at this point. And then when you see some of their activities, the finance financing piece speaks to whether or not they're going to be able to or inclined to launch big spectacular attacks abroad, or if they're going to need to focus a bit more in terms of their on-the-ground activities. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. Want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I 
found a, a solution to this problem. And I wanna stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete.me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete.me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete.me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing and phishing scams. Delete.me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. And so the other part of this that you you talk a fair bit about is how these groups, the Islamic State and, and others, store their money, right? And that there's there's lots and lots of interesting questions underlying the mechanics of how that happens. Walk us through that a bit. What's so valuable about thinking about that side of things? Yeah, this is probably one of the places where I've seen the least amount of really good work and research. And even even for my book, I think that it's one of the places where there's a ton more work that can be done here. But in terms of storage of funds, what we know so far is that you know, terrorist actors are storing some of that money in the formal financial sector. So there are bank accounts with terrorist funds in them. There are sometimes money service businesses that are holding some of those funds, depending on the country that we're talking about. And they'll also store money in businesses. So things like real estate, this was really popular, again, with the Islamic State in making investments in Turkey. Other kinds of businesses as well can be quite popular. So basically investing in the economic activity, either in their actual area of control or influence or in adjacent regions. So the money becomes easily accessible or easier to access anyways, but is outside of that sort of conflict zone where you might have really big inflationary pressures, where you're much more subject to counter-terrorist financing activity. But terrorists also store a lot of money in cash. And I would say that this is probably one of the the most interesting or one of the most interesting counter-terrorist financing activities that gets undertaken is sort of the kinetic destruction of cash storage sites. We've seen it in Afghanistan, we've seen it in the with the Islamic State that when terrorist groups store cash and they often have to store huge quantities of cash because that's how a lot of their taxation activities are happening, those sites become vulnerable to counter-terrorist financing strikes. 
you know, you could technically go in and probably try to steal the money, but it's just as easy to destroy it. And while this isn't necessarily going to really cripple a terrorist organization's overall financing structures, it can make it really unpleasant for them in the short term, you know, not being able to pay salaries, not being able to buy food, weapons, device components, all that kind of stuff, having to go back out and retax the population, if that's one of their activities that they're doing, all of this can really complicate their operations. And so it's one of the more interesting sort of kinetic counter-terrorist financing possibilities. And is that something that's at all common these days? Well, it really depends on a very specific set of circumstances. So first of all, there needs to be some sort of political will to be conducting you know, strikes against other states or in other states' territory. So the number of places where that could happen are pretty limited. You know, it's generally confined to countries really in a in a pretty significant state of conflict. But it is the kind of thing that is used, that has been used, I would say, over the last five or 10 years, more often than not. And I would expect to see it a little bit more, especially if, you know, if we're talking about you know, maybe Islamic State in Afghanistan targeting their cash storage sites can be a kinetic activity that can complicate their activities, but without necessarily risking too many civilian casualties. And so this discussion about the the ways that terrorists store their money is probably a good segue to think about the constellation of actors who are implicated in in terrorism financing, and particularly in the effort to counter terrorism financing. I think in in particular, there's one massive set of actors here that does not get a ton of attention on lawfare, and that's the financial institutions, right? And, And also the compliance cartels that sort of help financial institutions do their business. Talk a bit about what's the role of financial institutions here? This is one of those tricky questions, because Financial institutions, so banks um, primarily, and depending on what jurisdiction we're talking about, it could be a money service business. They have a really important role to play in the money laundering side of things. And I would say that they have a less important role to play, unfortunately, in the counter-terrorist financing space, although a lot of those activities are captured under that broader money laundering umbrella. And, And I'll explain this a couple of different ways. So when we talk about money laundering, we're talking about widespread criminal activity. It's often quite consistent across jurisdictions, which creates a large data set of basically use cases or case studies that can be used to create rules or algorithms to detect similar types of activity all over the world. So money laundering, financial crime are all susceptible to basically sort of machine learning algorithms, I'm using that it's more like just general detection rules. And those can be fairly effective at detecting financial crime. This becomes a much more difficult in the counter-terrorist financing space because the data set that we're looking at here is much, much smaller. And terrorists, I would say, are much more adaptive than criminal organizations. They, they Terrorists need to adapt much faster than the criminal actors do. The criminal actors can continue doing what they're doing, even if they're being you know, investigated and countered fairly effectively, and they can just move on to the next typology or the, the next set of activities fairly quickly. Terrorists, on the other hand, are constantly trying to stay one step ahead of law enforcement. They've got an ideological component to what they're trying to do. And I would say that the counterterrorism pressures on them are, are a bit stronger in most countries than they are on the criminal side. So what this ends up looking like is that when we're trying to engage banks and financial institutions to detect terrorist financing, 
it's really tough for them to do it because in most countries, they're looking at a handful of cases in terms of trying to set those rules or algorithms to detect terrorist financing activity. Most countries around the world don't have 30 terrorist financing cases a year. I think the United States would probably be an exception. There might be that many some years in France or the UK, but even then, probably not. And I would say that 30 is probably about the magic number in terms of really being able to develop good typologies or good rules for terrorist financing activity. And without that sort of base data set, it's really going to be difficult to tell a bank or a financial institution or a money service business what to look for. What does terrorist financing look for in 2021 in Canada? You know, it it changes really quickly. It doesn't cross jurisdictions very well because they're really exploiting the specific aspects of our economic and financial system. So this is a really big challenge for the financial institutions. There are some ways around it. I would say that some of the best information that I've seen come out of banks and other financial institutions involves information that has either come from open sources, so identifying a potential subject of investigation or a potential terrorist, and then the banks going through their financial hold, their holdings, their data holdings, and identifying the transaction activity that could be related to terrorist financing or terrorism in general. And then, of course, public-private partnerships where law enforcement security services are feeding either subject information to the banks or really specific sets of activities. And then finally, geofencing. So looking at transactions in specific geographic areas can also be beneficial. But all of this becomes very time consuming, very resource intensive, and often results in an awful lot of false positives. But still, right, the onus to do this, both from a sort of practical perspective of of who ends up with the the bucket in their hands to do the work and also from a legal perspective is on the banks often, no? Yeah, it is. And they also, don't forget, they have that reputational risk. So banks and other kinds of financial institutions tend to have a strong incentive or strong willingness to do this kind of work. They're really hamstrung though by that small data set. So I often describe this as, you know, money laundering is a big data problem. And detecting money laundering and financial crime is a big data problem. Detecting terrorist financing is a bespoke data problem. It's a small data set. It's a small data problem. But yeah, like banks will often ask me, how do we detect this activity? I don't have a lot of good answers for them. They want to do it because, you know, if they're found to be providing financial services when there's a major terrorist attack, that is terrible reputationally, let alone from an actual legal or compliance perspective. Um, so there is that issue. I think the the one thing that I always say to any financial institution who's in this space is the constant need to be following terrorist activity and up-to-date information on terrorist financing methods and trends, because it's the best way that we have right now to sort of be able to proactively find that activity. Yeah. So so one way to think about the terror financing space, which is probably a reductive one, as as you've mentioned before, is that Terror groups and individuals will, will conduct business in certain ways, right? And governments and international organizations will respond using designations, other criminal tools, other investigative tools. And then terror groups will sort of gradually adjust how they do things. Is that the right way to think about that? Like, are there examples where that pattern plays out? Or, or is it tend to be the case that that sort of overemphasizes the, the impact of government intervention here? I think it would be great to know the answer to that question. This is... 
I think probably the thing that bothers me the most about counter-terrorist financing policies and practices at the moment is that we have very little evidence of their effectiveness outcomes in terms of actually countering terrorist financing or countering terrorism. Um, It is a subject that I'm looking at for my dissertation because it's just such a big and challenging space. There's no empirical evidence that can tell us whether or not, for instance, criminalizing terrorist financing has any measurable impact on levels of terrorism, let alone levels of terrorist financing, which are very difficult to measure in and of themselves. So a lot of what I'm talking about here when I talk about sort of the effects of counter-terrorist financing on attacks and, and attack funding is still hypothetical. It's sort of the hypothesis that I'm working with for my PhD, but it's also informed, of course, by my practical experience in terms of what I've observed through my my counterterrorism work and, and also through some of these, the case studies that I pulled together for this book. But it is not the kind of question that we have empirical evidence for. Are there anecdotes, though, that they cut either way that you find to be particularly compelling, right? Either in the direction of these regulations and these types of criminalizations are something that has a real impact, or conversely, that you know we just drastically overweight the sort of damage that these things can do. Well, I think that there's a certain natural logic to thinking that if we're countering the financing of terrorism, it's going to limit the scope and scale of terrorist activity. I think that's a fairly clear causal pathway that we can explore. The, the issue there, of course, is just getting the evidence for that. And I'm working on it, and I will be able to to share that with you in approximately three to five years as PhD research takes an <laughs> awfully long time. <laughs> I would say, though, that in terms of the most effective counter-terrorist financing practice that I have seen and I have very good evidence for in terms of my own experience is the role of financial intelligence in counter-terrorism. So There are a number of different ways that we go about countering the financing of terrorism, and we can talk about those later. But uh, we've talked a little bit already about the role of banks and the regulatory approach. So that mandatory reporting, the mandatory involvement of the financial sector in counter-terrorist financing activities. An offshoot of that, though, has been the growth and exploitation of financial intelligence. And this is where we start to get some really concrete outcomes. So for instance, some of the work that I've done historically has been around detecting terrorist activity by looking at changes in patterns of behavior. And one of the main ways that people change their behavior in the lead up to terrorist attacks and terrorist events is through financial activities. So the procurement of goods, weapons, device components, but there's also other ways that they change their behavior. They may quit their job. They may send money to friends or family, a form of getting their affairs in order. They may settle some of their debts. They may even do things like write wills. There's a whole bunch of sort of activities that fit into this broader sort of personal finance categorization that when you're looking at different subjects of investigation and trying to figure out, okay, I've got got 15 people that I think are radicalized and could be looking to mobilize to violence? Where am I focusing my resources? Who is actually getting ready? When you see some of those changes in financial behavior, that starts to tell you an awful lot about where people are heading. Of course, it can generate false positives, but it's been one of the more reliable ways that I've seen financial intelligence used. 
And in terms of policy prescriptions, you, you have a bit of this in the book is what are the things, and it might might just be redundant with, with what you just discussed, but what are the things that you see as the most promising from a policy perspective? Yeah. So I think figuring out how to increasingly incorporate financial intelligence into investigations is certainly one of the places that I think we have a lot of promise. I will also though caveat here and put a little asterisk that there are some serious human rights violations that have gone on through the use and exploitation of financial intelligence that the international community has yet to really grapple with. So there's just been this huge push for states to adopt this counterterrorism financing regime, including the use and exploitation of financial intelligence. But it is also used by states to crack down on dissidents, to investigate and prosecute their opponents. So there's a lot that the international community hasn't really dealt with effectively there. In terms of other approaches that I think hold a lot of promise, you know, more detailed criminalization, I think, is one of those important things. So one of the following 9-11 and, and the adoption of the international convention for the suppression of terrorist financing, you know, all the states were supposed to criminalize terrorist financing. But I think we also need to go beyond that and start to criminalize a lot of other activities around that. So a lot of states, for instance, don't have criminalization of travel for terrorist activity or criminalization of the financing for travel of terrorist activity. The United States is used has a useful material support clause, other states need to be much more specific about all of those kinds of activities. And so we need to be identifying all of those things in states who have signed up to this convention that need to be updated with the terrorist space. And I think, you know, even things like financing and propaganda, that kind of thing could also be places where states could be reinforcing some of their criminal aspects. One of the interesting places where I think that there's some promise for additional counter-terrorist financing work that can take place is in the civil side of things. So some some countries have been have enacted the ability to sue banks or to try to sue different aspects of terrorist organizations for the activities that they have facilitated or the activities that they've actually conducted. And I think this holds a fair bit of promise because I think the criminalization of terrorist financing really gets to the terrorist organizations and some of the facilitators that also need to be brought into the fold. So making sure that if a bank, for instance, is providing financial services wittingly or unwittingly to a terrorist organization, if they can be held civilly liable, that may encourage enhanced compliance, enhanced due diligence, enhanced resources towards that detection of terrorist financing. And so we have a you know, not exclusively a U.S. audience, but many, many U.S. listeners. I'm, I'm curious what you think from a U.S. perspective. What are the things that are working well? You mentioned the, the sort of scope of the material support statute, but what's working well from a U.S. perspective? The U.S. has a propensity towards considering all types of financing, no matter how small, to be terrorist financing. And I think that that is a useful framework you know, some states have been reluctant to pursue prosecutions against individuals because their financing was in the few hundreds of dollars. But that's the reality of a lot of terrorist financing activity. It's going to be a few hundred dollars here and there. Sometimes we may get lucky and it may be tens of thousands of dollars. And, you know, it may look really good on the front page of a newspaper. But most of the time, terrorist financing activity is going to be a small amount of money. And so the United States has some precedents in terms of moving forward with prosecutions for those small amounts. And I think that's a really useful way to think about it. 
So maybe to close it, it might make sense to talk a bit about things that you're looking for on the horizon, right? You you have a whole section of the book where you speak about recent developments in the space. Walk us through what some of the most important things that have happened in, in the past couple of years are, whether that be crypto or or other things, and, and which of those you think will have sort of the most enduring impact going forward. The piece that I'm most interested in is the decentralization of finance and how that's affecting terrorist financing and the detection of terrorist financing. So as we've talked already about a little bit about cryptocurrency, that's certainly something, you know, I've been I've been following terrorist use of cryptocurrency for the better part of the last oh, 12, 13 years, which is incredible to think about. But there are other financial technologies as well that terrorists are exploiting. So there are other payment methods. The thing that's challenging here is that if, if it was just one or two different types of financial technology or cryptocurrency, that wouldn't be that big a deal for most states. You know, you can you can get up to speed on how Monero works, you can get up to speed on how Bitcoin works, and you can just become an expert and figure out all the ins and outs of that. But there are so many different types of financial technologies that are coming on the market, and so many that are regionally specific. So depending on where you're you're working and what you're what you're looking at, you have to understand your home country's financial sector and all of the financial technologies that are involved there, and also maybe three, four, five other countries and what was happening in their financial sector in terms of financial technologies, let alone regionally. So this becomes quite a challenge for counter-terrorist financing investigators to be able to understand the ins and outs of all of these different technologies. Where I think that there is some hope for you know, shared knowledge and shared resources is, you know, at the international level, I think it's very conceivable that we could develop international expertise that could be deployed to different jurisdictions on a lot of these different technologies to augment the investigative capabilities of states um, when they're confronted with this. I think one of the other pieces that I find a little bit frustrating is when, you know, there's an emphasis put on understanding cryptocurrencies in a country that has almost no exposure to cryptocurrencies. And part of me wonders, is this a great use of technical assistance of resources for that country? Or should we just be able to parachute people in to augment those capabilities? Obviously, that requires a great deal of international cooperation. International cooperation, though, in the counter-terrorist financing space has been really quite strong. So I have some hope there. But you know, this financial technology, the exploitation of financial technologies, the integration of payment processors, and payment methods into social media platforms and into messaging applications are other areas as well that I think are super interesting because again, it's going to be decentralizing that flow of funds. It's going to be making the counter-terrorist financing investigations more complicated, especially when they're when terrorist actors are combining multiple different types of payment methods. All of these are, are areas where I think that we need a lot more international cooperation and a lot more expertise. And I think we're going to leave it there. Jess, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. That was great. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Your audio engineer today was Hamza Shatou of Goat Rodeo. Your music is performed by Sophia Yan. And the podcast is edited and produced by Jen Patihao. If you feel so inclined, please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast if you use a podcast service that allows you to do so. And either way, consider sharing us on Twitter, on Facebook, or wherever else you'd like to share things. As always, thanks so much for listening.